if you're committed to a goal, if it's something that you really care about, looking at what you are missing, that is going to be motivating. That's Dr. Ayelet Fischbach, behavioral scientist and best-selling author of Get It Done. We also found that how you monitor progress will influence your level of aspiration. That means that if you're looking at what's missing, you will already think about the next step, the next role. Okay, what else can I do? I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Dr. Ayelet Fischbach to discuss the truth behind self-control and willpower, how our environments impact our behaviors, and how failures and setbacks can actually increase our motivation. What it takes to be successful is uh, knowing how to uh, deal with the situations in which you are not successful, knowing how to deal with the setbacks and, and the failures, or just being new at something, right? If you are successful, then the next thing is uh, uh, life or your boss is going to introduce a new challenge to you, something that you have never done before, and now you, you might not be uh, successful. And those greedy people, those people that are willing to, to work hard and, uh, and and deal with these difficult situations are the, the people that eventually uh, will have it easy. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Ayanet Fischbach is a professor of behavioral science and marketing at the University of Chicago and an expert on motivation and decision-making. She's also the best-selling author of Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. I began our conversation by asking Ayelet what inspired her to write this book. There is uh, so uh, much that is going on in, in the field of motivation science that it's like a room. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to to organize what I know and what I've learned and what I think that I know and maybe I don't. And um, and just had to write initially for my daughter who was studying med school at the time. So I, I just wrote for her and she commented and then it became a book. Obviously, there's a lot to goal setting, but really what's happening is you're, you're driving behavior change, right? So what would you say are like, the essential ingredients when it comes to successful behavior change? Successful behavioral change is uh, not just goal setting. Okay? It's goal setting. It's uh, monitoring the progress toward the goal. It's sustaining your motivation once you have set the goal. It's uh, you know, getting social support. It's uh, a multi-phase process. But the key is to understand that you change your behavior by changing the situation in which it occurs. Okay? And you change others by changing their situation. And, and you change yourself by changing your situation. And you know, a trivial example is uh, setting an alarm clock. You want to wake up in the morning. You you set an alarm clock, and when the alarm goes off, uh, instead of a quiet uh, room that uh, allows you to sleep, you have a noisy room where it's impossible to be sleeping. Everybody knows that. That's intuitive. What sometimes we miss is that this is true for every level of changing our behavior. We 
change the situation or we change the framing of the situation. Okay, we might uh, move certain foods from the house. Uh, we might set a target. And when we set a target, then anything below that target feels like a loss, which we really care deeply to avoid, in which case we, we change the framing of the situation. That's uh, the key principle and everything follows from that. I know you argue that you have to set goals that feel more like aspirations than like chores and that powerful goals feel worth the price tag. What do you mean by that? Goals are not chores. Goals should be exciting. They should uh, identify where you want to be, not uh, how hard you will have to work to get there. Okay, So uh, a goal to uh, have a job is better than a goal to apply for a job. It's more exciting to have a job than to apply for a job. Do goals are more exciting than do not goals. The most important element in setting a goal that's not a chore is intrinsic goals, uh, is setting a goal that feels right to do and not only to achieve. Intrinsic motivation is the, the feeling that you have that what you do feels good at the moment, okay, or feels right at the moment, as opposed to first I will do it and then later I'll get some rewards. And our goals are often not 100% intrinsically motivated. We are going to work because we need to get our paycheck and not only because it feels right and, and good to do our job, but the extent to which doing something feels right as we do that, the extent to which we are intrinsically motivated, we will uh, stick to the goal. So this is the, you know, the number one predictor of adherence to just about uh, everything. You mentioned the differences between setting do goals versus do not goals, like approach versus avoidance. So for example, I think in the book you talk about in sports, it's the difference between setting a goal to win versus a goal to not lose. Why is it important to set do goals? Avoidance goals tend to bring to mind the thing that you're trying to avoid. And it was uh, Dan Wagner, which uh, all the way in the 90s asked people not to think about white bears. And, and guess what? Once you're being asked not to think about white bears, there is nothing else that you want to think about. Okay? It's like not thinking about your ex. Okay? When you're trying to do that, the act of checking yourself, am I pursuing this goal successfully implies that you need to bring to mind the thing that you are trying to avoid. The other reason is uh, uh, psychological reactance. Uh, we tend to rebel when uh, someone, including ourselves, tell us not to do something. Once we identify that we don't want to do something, we really want to do that just because we told ourselves that we shouldn't. There was actually nice uh, research by Chris Bryan showing that you can motivate people by reminding them that other people want them to do something. <laughs> and the way that works is that he had adolescents and he told them that marketers want them to eat junk food. And learning that marketers want me to eat junk food led these adolescents to eat less junk food because they wanted to rebel, okay? They didn't want to do what other people wanted them uh, to do. I don't think that this is always the best strategy, but it illustrates the, the psychology of why when you're trying not to do something, it is much harder than trying to do something instead. And when it comes to setting goals, you argue that it's important to set abstract goals, but not too abstract. So the example you gave is it's better to focus on a goal of improving your mental health than simply saying be happy because it helps give you that, that next action of what to do. Where do you draw the line between too abstract versus making sure that it still remains abstract? You can do 
an exercise with yourself. Just ask uh, some why questions. Okay? Like, I want to go on a run this morning. Why? Because I uh, want to uh, meet my uh, weekly goal of running a certain number of miles. Why? Okay? Because maybe I want to keep in shape. Uh, why? Because this is important for my mental health. Why? Well, because I want to be happy. Uh, but notice that when we got to be happy, then the connection to the action was not very clear. Like there are many ways in which I can be happy and running doesn't seem quite related to it. When I think about what will make me mentally healthy, and in this case, maybe physically healthy, then running might seem more related to it. And so I would say, ask these why questions until the how becomes too obscure, okay? Uh, not very related to the goal. And then you you went too far. You want to get to the abstract level, but the level that is still very clearly connected to action that you can very easily say, and this is how I maintain my mental health, okay? Or this is uh, how I pursue business success, okay? Or this is how I become a good leader. What about the role in which, you know, numerical targets, like quantifying our goals plays on motivation? So if somebody were to say, I want to save money versus saying I'd like to save $10,000. Numerical targets work. They work to the extent that they motivate people to meet that target. You want to get the specific uh, number. There was a paper published that looked at the distribution of marathon times in the U.S., and they had about 10 million uh, marathon runners. And what they found is that there are many more people that are finishing the marathon just below the target, okay, just at like, let's say, three hours and 59 minutes than just above the target, which would be four hours and one minute because many marathon runners want to finish a marathon under four hours. What's going on here? Well, once you set your target as four hours or three and a half hours or four and a half hours, this is highly motivating. You you really want to meet this number. You are willing to uh, work hard so that you get to uh, that target. And so saving 10,000 or any other number that you came up with is better than just saying, I'm going to do my best. But there is one caveat that, we often care about the number more than about the goal, and, and that can be dangerous. Companies sometimes uh, encourage uh, employees to engage in less ethical uh, activities so that they can meet their target. And so I say that it's important that the target has a number. Okay, It could be how much, it could be uh, by when. Okay, We need to finish it by the end of the month, Okay, by the end of the week. But you also need to realize that the only purpose for setting these targets was to motivate yourself. And if now the target motivates you in the wrong way, then step back, reevaluate the goal and maybe set a different target. Many of us as leaders are very ambitious and sometimes optimistic on what a goal is that we can achieve. How do you know when a goal is too optimistic? Goals are usually optimistic, okay? and they are usually slightly optimistic, and this is good. Okay? Like you'll have to work harder than you intended in order to meet that specific target number. That also means that you know if you said that you're going to finish your project by the end of the month and you finish it like a few days later, 
this is good. Like the goal still worked in the sense that it still motivated you to, to work hard. When we know that it's too ambitious, that it's too optimistic, it's actually not the motivating optimism that led to setting the goal. It's pure planning fallacy. Okay, You just didn't think about everything else that you needed to do. You set the target not realizing what is possible and, and what is not possible. And uh, when people give up as a result, okay, by the way, they either give up or that they find shortcuts. Okay, They will achieve the goal, but in the wrong way. A few years ago, uh, Wells Fargo got the trouble. You may have remembered that they had these great initiatives that involved selling eight financial products to every customer. And as it turned out, you really cannot do that unless you are selling customers products that they are unaware of and never sign up for. If you see that employees need to use these shortcuts or that they are just they're giving up, okay? They're, they are less motivated because they say, well, you know, it's nice that you've set a target, but there is no way I'm getting there. Then you know that your target needs to be adjusted and it's perfectly fine to adjust your target. Okay? These targets are not set in stone. We design them so that they will motivate action. And speaking of which, there's the topic of incentives and having the rewards that can motivate you to stick to your goals. When does having the right incentive structure make sense and when does it not work? Incentives often work best when they are uncertain. If you only reward the behavior on some occasions and not always, you know, if you work hard, you, you might get the bonus. You don't know whether you will get it and how much it's going to be that uh, keeps you uh, working hard. Uh, it's also exciting when uh, incentives are uncertain. And so there is uh, a lot of work on how to make the incentives sufficiently Uncertain, sufficiently unstable, so that people actually care about them, that they actually notice that there is a reward here that's different than the reward that I got before or what I anticipate to get in the future. And, and then there are all kind of tricks with uh, thinking about whether to incentivize the group or the individual and how to best structure that. We should also be aware that incentives can seriously backfire. <laughs> In my book, I, I tell the story of the, the Hanoi massacre of rats. And this is uh, when uh, French colonists uh, back at the beginning of the 20th century were trying to uh, get rid of the rats running the streets of Hanoi by um, having a bounty uh, program. So they paid one cent per uh, dead rat. The result was uh, uh, that the residents of Hanoi started breeding rats so that they can kill them and claim the money. So... You know, incentive system can be uh, tricky. Yeah, it's almost like when you're designing an incentive structure, you, you want to consider the potential shortcuts that could exist or how the system could be gamed, right? Absolutely. Okay, what is uh, uh, the easiest way to get the incentive here? This is probably going to be the way that uh, people and, you know, and animals <laughs> will act. When someone isn't sure that they're incentivizing the right behavior or the right outcomes, like what were some questions that you'd recommend that they ask themselves? We need to realize that the incentive is usually not the goal. Okay? It's a mini goal. The real question is whether the incentive is leading to the behavior that we wanted to observe and the real goal that we wanted to achieve. Being incentivized to do that and the incentives are a signal that you're doing well. 
if you can get these incentives without doing well, okay, if you can steal the money instead of earning it, then the system is faulty. Yeah, it was so because I'm I was thinking about this. It really seems like when you've got the incentive right, there's a quality metric versus just a quantity one, which is based on time output, right? So meaning that, for example, let's say you're leading a sales team, a poor incentive could be incentivizing activity, for example, number of calls made, in which case someone could abuse that and say, Well, I'll just pick up the phone and dial numbers and hang up, versus incentivizing, let's say, the number of like outcomes based upon those calls. Yes. We really make uh, the distinction in motivation between uh, the motivation to do something and to do it right. And often these go hand in hand. Okay? Doing uh, uh, your job quickly uh, might not mean that you're doing it well. Okay? Like doing it well might actually take uh, uh, more time. And so we really want to understand how incentives affect how much people do how much output uh, there is and whether they've done a good job with it. This is a, a high quality. Unfortunately, with incentives, it's often easier to incentivize how much than uh, uh, how well. This is kind of you know, trivial once we say it, but uh, uh, often the, the trick with incentive systems that you really want to incentivize a work well done. A lot of what we've been discussing, you know, much of it has been extrinsic, but how does intrinsic motivation impact the likelihood of achieving our goals? Intrinsic motivation predicts adherence to goals, and this is uh, basically something that we see everywhere that we looked. Okay, We looked at New Year's resolutions, and then in, in the U.S., most people set New Year's resolutions. Most of the resolutions are related to health, so like eating healthily, exercising. Second most popular category uh, is like professional and financial goals. Okay, do well at work, uh, save more money, and, and so on. These are extrinsic goals. Okay, these are not goals that people set because they are excited about doing it because it feels right. But the extent to which they are intrinsically motivating, people will pursue them. So the little that you feel excited about doing the thing that you've set to do. That will predict whether you will engage in uh, that activity or that goal by the, the following November. Okay, So we, we go through the year and ask people a few times throughout the year whether they are still pursuing their goals. We looked at students studying in the library, what predicted how much time they spent on the materials, where, how interesting they were in what they were studying. We looked at consumption of healthy food. We looked at exercising. What predicts? whether people eat these foods and how long they stay in the gym and, and doing whatever they said to do is how much it feels good, how much the healthy food is tasty, how much the exercise is something that is fun for them to do. And so really the extent to which the goal feels right as you're doing it, that will predict persistence. Do people know that? Well, unfortunately, not as much as they should. When we look at the goals that people set for themselves, they often don't give enough weight to intrinsic motivation. They often think about their future self as someone who's only going to do what's important for them and not what feels good at the moment. And this is a bit of a lack of empathy to your future self. One could argue that the goal in life should be to find a role for yourself that aligns with your values and intrinsic uh, motivators because I know you say intrinsic motivation is really a combination of innate motives, which you say are programmed at birth, and then learned motives because a lot of everything extrinsic seems to require a lot of discipline, whereas intrinsic motivation is very much dependent on someone's engagement in everything they do. 
Absolutely. Okay. Intrinsic motivation, that means that it feels right as you're doing it. Now, let me correct that. It often doesn't feel right immediately. Okay. So often you need some initiation. Uh, it, it's what I refer to as like feeling comfortable to feel uncomfortable, at least for a little bit. Okay. And now uh, to give you an example, we recently uh, ran a study uh, with improvisation here with the Second City Improv Club in Chicago. What we found is that When we invited people to feel uncomfortable, and these were beginners just starting their improv class, they're not professionals, okay, they're like me. When we told people just, you know, do, do the exercise, do the improv, just feel uncomfortable, try to feel uncomfortable, then they were more willing to engage and they were more enthusiastic about coming back. And this is true for many things that we, we are doing for the first time, okay? So you're trying to get into uh, like a new area, you might not feel comfortable. You are learning a new topic. You are working on a project you've never worked before. Intrinsic motivation might be something that kicks in later, okay? And, and so don't worry about starting something that doesn't quite feel right as you start it, okay? It might take time. But then after a while, whether it feels right, whether it feels good is the predictor of whether you're going to persist. And then what about just progress towards goals? Because, you know, in the book, you mentioned the goal gradient effect, if you could elaborate on that. The goal gradient uh, refers to the increase in motivation as we are about to uh, reach a goal. Okay. And so... Now, when we look at uh, promotion uh, and loyalty programs, we see that uh, many customers drop the program after one purchase. Very few drop the program when they are just one purchase away from uh, receiving the reward. They are very enthusiastic about making the last purchase that will get them that reward. The reason is that there is really more than you get with your last few steps than your first few steps. For all or nothing goals, Your last purchase gets you a reward. Your first purchase gets you just a tiny part of a, a reward. And so motivation will increase uh, over time. It's also interesting to know that even for goals that don't have this uh, prize at the end, it's not all or nothing, like staying fit okay, or being successful at work. The more people do it, The more they feel committed, the more they feel that they can do it, there, there is an increase in motivation. And so the, the advice to um, just, you know, do it, okay, and, and check with yourself how you feel after you've done it for a while is often uh, correct. While many of us are motivated and ambitious when we begin pursuing goals, our commitment tends to dwindle in the middle. We start to lose focus or even cut corners. To overcome this, Ayala offers a simple solution. Keep middles short. So maybe set a monthly saving goal. Okay, a monthly exercise goal is probably too long. Okay, a weekly exercise goal means that there is a short middle, there's a beginning and end and just a few days that are in the middle and that makes it easier for people. So keep middles short. And you also mentioned that how important our goals are determines how likely we are to be motivated by progress or the lack of it. What do you mean by important? I mean that if you're committed to a goal, if it's something that you really care about, looking at what you are missing, looking ahead and say, I'm that far from where I want to be, that is going to be motivating. If you are not really sure that the goal is important, uh, then looking back is going to motivate you. So, you know, we ran a study with students who were either studying for a really important exam or an exam that wasn't really important. It was a pass-fail exam and students didn't really think that they should study much for it. 
the important exam when they were thinking about the materials that they have not yet covered, okay, what's still missing? That made them work hard. The unimportant exam where it wasn't clear whether I should really be studying in the first place, well, when they thought about what they've already done, okay, the materials that they've already covered, that increased their motivation. And so we, we really need to be thoughtful in how we, we monitor progress. We also found that how you monitor progress will influence your level of aspiration. That means that if you're looking at what's missing, you will already think about the next step, the next role, okay? What else can I do? When I studied with an advertising company in Seoul, in South Korea, and we found that when we directed employees' attention to what they have not yet achieved, they were already planning about what they will do and how they will move to the next role at work. However, when we asked them to look back at what they've already achieved, they had lower level of aspiration, yet they were happier with the current world. They were more satisfied with the job that they have done and you know, what they were currently uh, doing. So how you monitor progress really matters. And speaking of that, so when we're doing well and succeeding, it seems like positive reinforcement helps us keep that momentum. But when we fail, things like our ego gets bruised and then we have this natural tendency to either tune out and or quit. I'm curious, how can we reframe negative feedback to use it as an effective means for making progress? Negative feedback is hard to learn from <laughs> because it hurts us emotionally and because it's just cognitively harder, okay? If you learn what's not, then by a process of elimination, you need to say, well, if that didn't work, then there is another uh, way of, of doing that. That's not easy. There is a reason why if you ever train a pet, they say to only use positive reinforcement because... Now, when you punish your dog, the dog understands that what they did is wrong. They just have no clue what is the right behavior, okay? Doing this cognitive switch from if this is not true, then there's something else uh, that is true. That's uh, not easy. So learning from failure is, is hard. It's not impossible, okay? Uh, one way you can improve your chances is by recalling uh, your commitment or your expertise, Giving advice to another person often forces people to think about what they have learned. Adopting a growth mindset, thinking uh, about how you grow from failures. Keeping distance, okay, a third-party perspective. Uh, this is Ethan Cross's uh, work on, uh, on referring to yourself by your name. Okay, So asking myself, I yell at what went wrong. I yell at why did you mess it up? That helps keep a healthy distance and... Uh, and allow you to learn from failure, but it's, it's, it's not easy. It's much easier to learn from successes. You mentioned growth mindset, and I know Carol Dweck was one of the, one of the people that endorsed your book um, who wrote Growth Mindset. I'm curious as to the mindset towards negative feedback. I know the two you describe as either low commitment or lack of progress, and the mindset that we essentially have on our negative feedback really is the differentiator between whether we're seeing it as a lack of progress or a failure as a motivation to work harder. Exactly. And Carol's work is really fundamental here. Carol Dweck uh, was looking at education. What she found over the years is that when students get bad feedback, bad grades, they can either take it as a sign that they are failure, okay, that this is not for them, that uh, I guess I'm not a math person, uh, whatever that means, because it probably doesn't mean anything. Or they can uh, uh, take it as a sign that there is a place to grow here, okay, that there is something to learn. And if you 
teach students to have a growth mindset, if you teach anybody to adopt a growth mindset, then they are actually better able to learn from failure. And this is really uh, something that is more intuitive for those of us who are highly committed, who feels like experts. If something doesn't work, then you might be even intrigued, like, how come that didn't work? Like, what went wrong here? Let me understand that. For uh, novices, for people that are less committed, it is uh, harder and you really need to take, train them or train yourself to think in terms of growth mindset. So it's interesting, like the more committed you are, the less likely you are to be undermined by negative feedback. But the factor that really plays a role in, in commitment really to come back to the setting of the goals, right? Ensuring that you have the right goals that are goals that you would actually be committed to. Even if you set the right goal, the more you do it, the more committed you are. <laughs> like it. It takes some time. Allow yourself to engage before you would experience the commitment. Let's, let's actually let's talk about that because I think Angela Duckworth was one of the other people who had endorsed your book. She wrote Grit and she talks about this concept because what you're arguing is also the fact that even goals may be challenging, even they may be discouraging, even if initially you may feel that the intrinsic motivation isn't there, stick with it because it seems like if you stick with it long enough, that's where you do start to find that intrinsic motivation and purpose and commitment and, and all these things that are necessary to have successful outcomes. Yes, and uh, I would love to talk about uh, Angela Duckworth's work because Angela uh, and I uh, co-authored a paper that looked at something along these lines. Okay, what does it take to uh, to be successful? And often what it takes to be successful is uh, knowing how to uh, deal with the situations in which you are not successful, knowing how to deal with the setbacks and, and the failures, or just being new at something, right? If you are successful, then the next thing is uh, life or your boss is going to introduce a new challenge to you, something that you have never done before, and now you, you might not be uh, successful. And what Angela Duckworth found is that uh, those greedy people, those people that are willing to work hard and uh, and deal with these difficult situations are the, the people that eventually uh, will have it easy, okay, that like will be able to find their passion and do things uh, uh, much more easily. In our joint paper, which was actually led by uh, Lauren Esquis-Winkler, we found that when people experience those setbacks and we encouraged them to give advice to another person, they were able to uh, stay motivated. And we looked at people that were unemployed, so they were looking for a job, or they reported that they are struggling saving money, or they were reported that they are too angry, so they were trying to control their emotions. Uh, we looked at overweight people by their own testimony and at students. Every one of them, when they were struggling, well, I would not say everyone, because of course it's an experiment and there was individual variance, but as a group, when strugglers gave advice to another struggler, they were more motivated than we chose the best advice we could find and gave it to them. That's fascinating because this kind of brings in the power of like community. And I want to talk about actually self-control because I know this is an area of research that you're quite passionate about. What's the role of self-control when it comes to sticking with our goals? Like how do we overcome ourselves? Self-control is uh, where I started my uh, career. So uh, I'm very, <laughs> very passionate about self-control. It was the topic of my uh, PhD dissertation. Self-control kicks in when there are two things that we want to achieve. 
And we actually prioritize one over the other. So it's a specific goal conflict in which there is one goal that we really want to adhere to, another goal that is less important for us. Okay, so maybe I, I want to uh, exercise more than uh, I want to uh, stay on my uh, sofa and, and rest. Or, or maybe I want to eat healthy food uh, more than I want to eat unhealthy uh, food. Or maybe I want to control my temper more than I want to express how I truly feel at the moment I feel it when these are negative emotions. So people have these two goals and they are in conflict. What it takes to be successful at self-control is first to identify that there is a problem and then second to battle the temptation, okay, to be able to overcome it. To give you an example for one strategy that helps people see that there is a problem, we can make many decisions together in a wide decision frame. When People, for example, thought about all the the exceptional expenses that they will have this year, all the times that they will be going to a hotel room okay, or buy a champagne bottle. They were planning to spend less money than when they thought about just like one time. Okay, one time that I will go to a hotel room, one uh, champagne that uh, I will buy, or no, one gift to a friend. And that's uh, research by uh, Abby Sussman here, my colleague who studies consumer behavior. We find that even with unethical behaviors, okay, when you ask people, would you take office supply for personal use just once, then most people say yes. And then would you do this 10 times this year? Most people say no. Okay, just thinking about multiple opportunities together helps people see, oh, this behavior is actually not the way I want to act, okay, the way I want to see myself, if you will. Then the second challenge is to exercise self-control. And what we find is that when people are aware that they are going to have a temptation, they are better prepared. They are better mentally and often physically prepared to resist. So interventions such as uh, reminding yourself that uh, it's going to be a very tense situation. It's going to be very easy to lose your temper. Or there are going to be lots of alcohol at the party. Or uh, you are going to be tired and uh, wish to skip your daily exercise. All of these help you to exercise self-control at the moment so that you will not drink too much alcohol, not lose your temper and uh, exercise on that day when you don't quite feel like it. So it seems like we're not very good just as a whole at self-control, right? And I'm curious as to the relationship between willpower and then environment. So for example, if somebody aims to eat healthy, are they better off, you know, exercising, you know, these practices of self-control or removing all unhealthy foods from their home? The way to change our behavior is to change the situation or the way we frame it. Given that you cannot uh, fully uh, remove all temptations from your environment, then uh, the way you think about these objects or activities uh, also uh, matter. If, for example, you told a friend that uh, you are not going to touch these donuts, or if you made a rule that you don't eat donuts in the office, then uh, despite the fact that they might be there because someone else bought them to you, you should still be able to resist. So at least has a better chance. It's, it's hard. Donuts are good. 
whether it's, you know, donuts or drinking or whatever it is, you see people and they're in situations that require this degree of self-control that they begin to negotiate with themselves, right? Like they're looking at the sweets and they're thinking, hmm, what if I just had one donut, right? And then one turns to two, it turns to five and, and beyond. I, I agree in, in, in the case that you can't completely remove ourselves from all environments. I mean, I imagine we have to socialize as human beings, but for someone who is really struggling with maintaining a certain habit or uh, progress towards a goal, at what point do you say, hey, you've got to really control the environment of what's around you, the people around you, and approach it that way? You should always start with the environment. It's the easy way, okay? Just don't have certain things in your environment or do have certain things in your environment. Let me give the, the example of working from home. Back in the days when we all worked in the office, it was easy not to feel tempted to uh, do my, my household chores uh, when I was in the office. There was clear separation. And I, I, when I was at work, I was just working. And when I was at home, I was doing everything else. But then the situation has changed on us. Okay? And, and many people are working from home, at least part-time. And now you have to build all these self-control devices. Okay? Now you need to say, well, like when I, I sit in, in this room or in this space, I focus on, on work and maybe I cannot quite work in my kitchen because there is just like too much that is going on there. And this before I, I mentioned all the foods that are there that is, is distracting. And so, yes, you're right. Like in certain environments, that's easier. And we should design our environments so that there are fewer temptations there. But we should constantly adjust and constantly think that we you know, we can remove from the environment. We should be thoughtful about where we put ourselves so that it is easier to get things done there. What about juggling multiple goals? So, for example, when somebody finds themselves in a situation where they almost have conflicting goals, let's say they're very career-driven and they want to really grow in their career, which requires a certain level of commitment and dedication, but then they also want to spend more time with their kids, how do you basically reconcile the two? In a way, self-control is already juggling multiple goals, but self-control ha has this structure where there is like self-control dilemma it has one goal that you want to achieve more than another goal. And the other goal is what we call temptation. When we juggle multiple goals, this is when we are looking to get some balance. Uh, we want to find the right balance. Okay. And many times that is the, the situation that you'll find themselves at. And now we look at the strategies that allow them to best identify a way to pursue multiple goals at the same time. When we, we look at the activities that people choose is that uh, often there is a preference for what we refer to as multifinal means or multifinal activities. And these are activities that help you achieve several goals simultaneously. Okay, it's what I refer to as feeding two birds with one scone because I, I don't like killing bears. It's uh, uh, maybe a, a commute to work by bike, so you both get to work and you get your exercise or you know, bringing your uh, food from your lunch from home so that uh, it's uh, uh, both uh, healthy and uh, less expensive designing, okay, some thoughtful plan. And it's particularly important when people have more demands on their life. The other structure that I would mention is when you have several activities that all serve the same goal, okay, and we refer to this in motivation science as an equifinal structure or all roads lead to Rome. In this structure, 
the advantage is that you have a plan B, okay? If you can think about four ways in which you can exercise, okay? You can uh, go to the gym, you can run, you can do yoga at home, you can go on a walk with a friend. In a way, you only need one of them, or at least one of them in a day. But by the fact you can generate several, you increase your commitment and you have a backup plan, which is helpful for people as they, they think about following through with these goals. And I want to talk about this, the short-term behaviors sometimes that sabotage our long-term goals. So uh, you mentioned earlier when we first started speaking that we discount our futures, right? So the, this belief that our, our future is worth less because it's not happening right now. Um, how does this play out just in the form of not just goal setting, but just in our behaviors as it relates to patience? Yeah, patience is hard. <laughs> patience requires that we forego something that is available sooner in order to get a better option at later. With savings, it means that I, I will not use that, the money now because if I keep it aside, then I will have more later. Or, you know, with uh, a pursuit of professional advancement, okay, I might uh, take a class that uh, will be hard now, but in the future, that means that I'm eligible for for a better role, for a better job. Patience is, is hard because it requires giving up on the immediate outcome. And as humans, we want something immediately. Okay? We are present-oriented. If I can get something now, it is so much more valuable for me than if I can get it in the future. Okay, There is a reason why People are willing to pay more for things that are available now, okay? Why we, we pay more for a flight if we fly today or for a theater ticket? Why uh, uh, we are paying for expedited delivery? We like to get things now, and patience goes against it. And so uh, much of the work in motivation science is directed to helping people wait, okay? To helping people realize that it might be a better deal not to get the thing right now because there is a, a better option uh, later on. It seems like the people we surround ourselves with, that, that seems to play a significant factor in our motivation to achieve goals. Um, how is it important in terms of this community, role models, even anti-role models, as you mentioned? The naive perception that we have uh, is that if something is important for us, we are just going to do it. We pursue goals with others and in the presence of others. That is, many of our goals require a team effort. I would say that if something is really big and important, usually someone else is helping. We are not doing it by ourselves. And then we are pursuing many individual goals in the presence of others. Okay? Uh, whether you are able to stick to your health goals might depend on your family members, which are just there and, and watching you and either help you uh, be accountable for your goals or discourage you. Designing the, the social support, finding your role model is really critical. Other role models are the people that we don't want to be like, okay, that demonstrate the person that we do not want to be. And it's often helpful to know, like, I don't want to be like that person. I want to be like another person. Like, your role model is usually someone who expresses the right values, okay? So it's less about their behavior. It's more about what they believe in, okay? That they actually chose to behave in a certain way, that they believe in certain values. And your best role model also wants you to be successful 
and I give the example of watching athletes on television, which I don't think inspires anybody to exercise. It's uh, uh, the person in your life that wants you to exercise. This is uh, the person that motivates you to act. Yeah, this is your, your best role model. So I'm curious, why is that? When, when we're watching, let's say, athletes on TV, that that doesn't motivate us to exercise, is it because of a disconnect in, in saying that we are too far apart, we're nothing alike versus somebody that you may know that perhaps you have more commonalities with or even similar upbringing? Yeah, absolutely. So two things there, okay? One is that they are too good, okay? It's like I look at them and say, well, I'm not like that. I will never be like that. And, and therefore it becomes irrelevant. The other element is that they're not part of our life. And it really matters that your role model is uh, someone who wants you to be successful. Often it's someone that you know, but it doesn't need to be, okay? Like a good leader might be someone that you may have never met personally. Okay? It might be a political leader. It might be like a company leader that is just too far from you. And nevertheless, when you listen to them, they express a desire that you will do something better. And you get that. And you understand that they care about what you do and want you to be uh, successful. And these are the people that might uh, get you to exercise, uh, not the athletes that's pursuing their own uh, personal achievements. And as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I would say that uh, the game changer will uh, uh, lead me to look at the situation in a new light, to uh, see opportunities that I haven't seen before, to uh, have uh, a new take, uh, a new uh, way. I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Ayelet Fishbach for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Ayelet said that the more committed you are, the less likely you are to be undermined by negative feedback. But if you aren't yet committed, you may take negative feedback as a signal that you're not committed. And the less committed you are, the harder it is to stay motivated in the wake of failure. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Dr. Ayelet Fishbach, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time. We'll be speaking with elite celebrity divorce attorney, Laura Wasser. Look, at Southern California, people love a good romance. They love planning the wedding. They love having the showers. I've had so many young people come to me a month or so after they've gotten married, and they said, it's such a letdown. Like, for the past two years, we've been planning this wedding and having showers and going on, you know, the honeymoon. And that phrase, the honeymoon is over. This is when your real life begins. And, you know, sometimes here in Hollywood, we don't necessarily, we're not well equipped to deal with real life. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.